What do we do when we tell a story? What happens when we listen to a story told? Is storytelling simply an offer of entertainment or a deeply empathetic act that connects us to what it is to be the human animal? Is it a vanishing art or is it something that will always define who and what we are? And could infinite monkeys really tell a tale from Shakespeare given infinite time? From the Stonehill College English Department and Creative Writing Program, it's the Electro Library, a podcast, a literary neural network, a philosophical space-time remix, a kaleidoscope of consciousness on electromagnetic waves. Each episode explores a single theme across time, cultures, and disciplines. The Electro Library, a cabinet of curiosities for your ears. Episode 1 storytelling. So Joan Didion's The White Album opens with this quote that she's probably most famous for, which is, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. I'm going to read the first paragraph of The White Album and then talk a little bit about why that quote is so important to me and and why I teach this book often. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. The princess is caged in the consulate. The man with the candy will lead the children into the sea. The naked woman on the ledge outside the window on the 16th floor is a victim of axody, or the naked woman is an exhibitionist, and it would be interesting to know which. We tell ourselves that it makes some difference whether the naked woman is about to commit a mortal sin or is about to register a political protest or is about to be the Aristophanic view snatched back to the human condition by the firemen in priest's clothing just visible in the window behind her, the one smiling at the telephoto lens. We look for the sermon in the suicide, for the social or moral lesson in the murder of five. We interpret what we see, select the most workable of the multiple choices. We live entirely, especially if we are writers, by the imposition of a narrative line upon disparate images, by the ideas with which we have learned to freeze the shifting phantasmagoria, which is our actual experience. I think this is so true. We try to make sense of the world around us, which is full of situations and events that don't make any sense at all. Everybody, whether they're a writer or not, is constantly creating narratives to try to make sense of our own histories and our own experiences and the events of the world. We tell the story a million different ways and go with the one that feels like it makes the most sense at the time. But things change, our perspectives, the information we are privy to, and therefore the story is always evolving no matter what it is. To be telling the story is what it is to be alive. It's a vital part of our existence, no matter who we are. So in a sense, we're all writing all the time in our minds, but um, I think it's quite an essential part of being human. 
name is Daria Labutina, and I'm a senior. The poem is called Citizen. Citizen means naturalized. It means I stood up with people I had never seen before and pledged allegiance to the flag. It means the words were on a piece of paper, but above all, they were at the tip of my tongue, etched on the roof of my mouth, retrieved every morning at school. It means I'm allowed to disagree. It means that when I do, I join a chorus of other voices, not a void of fear. It means I can be an English major in a liberal arts college headed for the nonprofit sector. It means I'm an individual. It means you honor my privacy. It means the eyes in public transit don't sear, judge, curse. It means, excuse me, and how are you? Instead of excuse you, and what do you want? It means injustice in the headlines instead of corruption in the mousetraps. It means there are words for compassion, misogyny, integrity. It means anti-bullying and mental health awareness are terms in my vocabulary. It means this is ours and you can't take it away. It means overwhelming testaments of humanity. Next to crushing atrocities. It means me too and not what her too. It means what boyfriend, what are you talking about? Not when are you getting married and having kids? It means this is imperfect. It means it gets so much worse than this. It means this is the home we chose. This is the home that makes choices we didn't choose, but this is home. This is home. This is the home we chose. think about it, if you're reading a book in a funny way, you're writing it. A book that's just sitting on your table, um, that's full of paper, it has a formula for an experience in it. The formula happens to be um, in alphabet and words, and, but as when the writer says, I walked across um, a crowded intersection. The intersection that you're seeing is your intersection. In fact, he could or she could be so more and more and more specific and you still would be seeing your intersection. So I always think if you can read a book, you can write a book. Because you're having to imagine all of the stuff. And in fact, that's why you're reading it. So, you know, my feeling is that storytelling is as natural to people as, in fact, it, I think, I'm starting to think of the image world as kind of our external organs. Mm. You know, um, when people say, oh, I don't, I can't write great stories, or my drawings are so ugly, I love to say, what about your liver? <laughs> Do you like your liver? Is it good looking to you? It's your liver! You know, it's like, it doesn't have to be cute. It's, it, it's an organ that's performing a function. Um, and you wouldn't want to get rid of it um so i'm not sure i want to show it to too many people either but i'd wear my liver on the on my forehead (laughs) if i if i could just just to see what would happen (laughs) that question of what's the truth of an event versus what is the narrative structuring of an event oh absolutely so i always um I always add an element of of surprise and chance whenever I'm going to work. So, for example, say I want to write a story about a car, for whatever reason, write a story about a car. I don't just go, hmm, which car should I pick? I I set a timer. I have to write down the, the first 10 cars I can think of in 90 seconds. And then I look at that list, and I look for the one that seems to... Be vivid. It could be vivid because it's a cool memory. It could be vivid because there's no way in hell I want to write about that right now, which lets you know that's exactly the thing you're going to write about. And then I ask myself all those questions about uh, 
Where's the light coming from? Where am I? And as I kind of ask those questions, the story starts to show up. And then when it's time to write, I always write for a very specific amount of time. Um, it's what I do for my students, too. So the first foray into it is seven minutes. And at, f- at four minutes, I, uh, I usually like, I'll set a timer. Uh, so I know there's only three minutes left. People worry about knowing how to edit or not edit, but if you're talking on the phone to a friend and you, like, maybe you're talking about somebody you hate, you both hate this person, so it's kind of a delicious conversation, and then you realize that you thought you had five minutes to go over how awful this person was and you realize you only have two, everybody knows how to edit it. I mean, so the storytelling, which has become this sort of exotic thing uh, for people once they hit adolescence or afterwards, they think there's a way to do it. Um, is, is just naturally part of our lives. And I have found that over and over again, um, working with little kids. Like, little kids are the ones who really can wail on the storytelling guitar. <laughs> but, so, you know what, speaking of which, uh, I have my composition notebook here, and I wrote this piece, when did I write this? Two days ago. It's just a, and this, this, this is just a little short um, comic um, you won't be able to see the pictures, but it won't really matter. Um, where I just start with a question, and it's a question um, uh, I had because of my students who are on their phones all the time and don't don't look up. And so we talk about um, what you miss when you don't look up. So the question, I'd st- I love to start with a question. So the question is, and it's the title of the comic, What is there to see? What is there to see? Sometimes people say this about their hometown, but the kid in you saw a lot. The three-year-old in you saw everything. You may not remember that level of fascination with the world, but you know that it happened. There was a time when alive and not alive were hard to tell apart because they were not apart. I remember being seven and waking up in the middle of the night and then scared out of my mind by a shirt. It was on a hanger facing me, and I swear I could see it breathing. I knew it was just a shirt, but I also didn't know what it wanted from me. You probably have a memory of something like this, something that seemed alive to you, alive enough to scare you sometimes. It was a spooky but lively world, and I miss it, whatever it was. When I watch people interacting, and when I try to draw them, I feel scared in that same way, like someone's watching me, thinking I'm a weird-looking old lady with Willie Nelson braids and hating me. And then I look up and I remember, no one looks at each other anymore. I can stare at them all I want. The short answer to the initial question, what is there to see? The car door, the street lamp, roof of the parking garage, spinning wheel. So that, like, that's a comic that I wrote um, in that, you know, I think I probably uh, gave myself 12 minutes to write that. And there's just something about that time limit that allows you to tell a story. And it's so fun to read something out loud that no one else has, I don't know, I just didn't, no one else has seen that. And I don't think they ever will, actually. You guys might be the only ones who see it. Well, everybody who's listening to this conversation can all imagine your liver. Yeah. Imagine my liver. And remember, the first syllable is live. (laughs) This is a poem by Lin Chen. The title is Names. My younger brother gives his name, nothing common like John or Steve, but a talk show host has that name, 
and it's English, so it's American enough. By default, they know he's a first gen, one of two, but ignore the semantics. They don't ask where he's from; they just press onwards. I give my name, third or fifth most common in China, easy to spell, to say, to be foreign. By default, I'm the question mark. I'm the first first gen, but it's the harder answer. They ask if I hail from the country of Asia. My eyes squint, though that's Exhibit A. I answer. They ask again. Third time's the charm, though I really should be the first. Windows by Charles Baudelaire. He who looks in through an open window never sees as much as he who looks at a window closed. There is nothing more profound, more mysterious, more fecund, more tenebrous, more dazzling than a window illuminated by a candle. What one sees in the sunlight is always less interesting than what happens behind a pane of glass. In this gap, black or luminous, life lives, life dreams, life suffers. Beyond the swells of the rooftops, I glimpse a middle-aged woman, already wrinkled, poor, always bent over something, never going out, with her face, with her clothing, with her gesture, with almost nothing at all. I refashion the story of this woman, or rather her legend, and sometimes I tell it to myself while weeping. If it had been a poor old man, I would just as easily have refashioned his, and I go to bed. Proud of having suffered in others than myself, perhaps you will say to me, "Are you certain that this legend is true? What does it matter what reality might lie outside my own, if it has helped me to live, to feel that I am, and what I am?" Okay, so um,、uh, I would talk a little bit about the so-called infinite monkey theorem, which says that if you were to place a monkey at a keyboard and let it start striking keys randomly for ever for an infinite amount of time, then you would expect that eventually something profound would turn up. For example, like Shakespeare or or anything. But infinity is a long time, and so this is sort of theoretically correct, but practically speaking, that is、um, something close to impossible. So I, I would sort of take this back to a, or down to a, a relatively simple example, and that is of the apocryphal story by Ernest Hemingway that says six words: for sale, baby shoes, never worn. Now, in that story, there are 33 characters that are here, including letters, space, comma, period, colon. If we imagine to sort of get a sense of how unlikely it is that a monkey would be able to type that randomly, we could set it up the following way: to suppose that we're going to give the monkey a keyboard with 30 characters, so we'll just stick to lowercase letters. So let's see, the number of possible sequences of link 33. Where you've got at each step 30 possible characters is 30 to the 33rd power. 
you've got 30 choices for the first space, 30 choices for the second character, 30 for the third, and so on. So the multiplication principle in mathematics says that ultimately the number of total possibilities will be 30 times 30 times 30. That is to say 30 to the 33rd power. Now, what that is, is sort of, to put that maybe in more familiar context, that is uh, something like 10 to the 48th power. So in other words, to, to envision what that is, it would be a 1 and then 48 zeros following after that. So that is the total number of 33 character quote-unquote stories, most of which would be nonsense, using these 30 characters that I mentioned. Uh, there's a lot. So, uh, But the chance that a monkey would actually produce among those 10 to the 48th possibilities Hemingway's story is essentially non-existent. Imagine the monkey is really fast. Suppose that instead of we simulate this monkey with a modern computer, a modern computer can process, if you programmed it to do so, about a billion such quote stories in one second. So that is to say these 33 character sequences, a good computer could run through about a billion in a second. It gives us some sequence in a natural way of, without repeats, do a 33-character sequence and another and then another and then another and so on, eventually to all 10 to the 48th or so possibilities. And so it's running about a billion of these per second. Now, in the course of a year, a, a, a little calculation shows that there's about 32 million seconds. So this computer, if we just let it run, in the span of a year can cover... 32 million billion possibilities of these sequences of uh, letters and spaces and colons and etc. That, that's a lot, right? But in comparison to the total number of possibilities, which is 10 to the 48th or so, it's not a lot. So, for example, to count how many years then it would take this computer, if we just started it up and let it run and uh, see if uh, Hemingway's story turns up. Well, so it's, again, doing about... The number in a year is about 32 million billion. To try to count by year by year, 32 million billion for the first year, the same number for the second year and the third year, and eventually get to the total number of possibilities if we generated the, the sequences of 33 characters one by one, we'd be talking about 10 to the 48th, that is the total number of possibilities, uh, divided by how many we can do in a year, 32 million billion. That is on the order of 10 to the 30th power, something north of that. So that's a lot, a lot of years, 10 to the 30th power. So let's see. Now, to try to turn this into some sort of probabilistic kind of thinking, we could imagine that if the computer was generating these potential stories, again, 33 characters, in a random order but without repeats, then Hemingway's six-word, for-sale, baby shoes never worn is one of these it would be equally likely to turn up in any of the 10 to the 30th years that we would be letting this computer run for. So the chance, therefore, that it would be turning up in the next year on our computer, that we would see it in within one year of this computer actually running this process, uh, what would be 1 over 10 to the 30th power, assuming there's none of the stories get repeated, that somehow the computer is able to do uh, each one individually in a random order. Well, 1 over 10 to the 30th power is, in other words, in sort of decimal form, point zero 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 dot 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 zero one twenty nine zeros in a 1. That, as a chance, is essentially nothing. Um, very close to zero that, the, that this Hemingway story could turn up 
from this computer working very quickly in the span of one year. So then to take it a little bit further, we could say, well, what if we wanted to understand the chance that it would uh, Hemingway's story would turn up in the next millennium? And so then, well, we've got a thousand years to work with instead of just one, our probability would convert that the story would be there to 1,000 years out of the total number of years. That is to say, 10 to the 30th power. 1,000 over 10 to the 30th is 1 over 10 to the 27th power. That is to say, 0.00 dot 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 zero one, 26 zeros followed by a one. And there's our probability that our computer would generate that story in the next millennium. Effectively, the answer is, uh, for this probability, is still zero. It's very, very low chance. And to make it even more dramatic, maybe one last case is to say that it's expected that the sun would burn out within a number of years below 10 to the 10th power. So uh, four and a half billion years or so until the expected lifetime for the rest of the sun uh, in, that, in that ballpark, that's below 10 to the 10th power. So we could say then, well, if our computer somehow could run at its operating speed of a billion stories per second until the end of the solar system, what's the chance that Hemingway's six-word story, again, would, would, would appear? It's not much. It's, so how we could figure that out is we could say, well, a, 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 an overestimation of the probability would be 10 to the 10th power, the number of years we'd be sort of watching, over 10 to the 30th power. Well, so now to sort of simplify that fraction becomes 1 over 10 to the 20th power. That is to say 0.000.01 with 19 zeros in front of that one. So as a chance, for all intents and purposes, that is still equal to zero. So again, to emphasize this point, right, the chance that this very um, prof- profound but compact story of six words, 33 characters, would turn up by a computer, a monkey, uh, working at a pretty exceptional speed of about a billion potential stories per second under the assumption that the, none of those get repeated as we look at them in sequence again and again and again and again. So the chance that one, this one, Hemingway's, would turn up by the end of the solar system is sort of vanishingly small. As I said at the beginning, uh, if infinity is a long time, and if you really had an infinite amount of time, then, uh, then you would expect that, that anything, short or long, profound or otherwise, would turn up by this random keystroke process. But... The reality is, in sort of the practical terms and the sort of the time frame of the solar system, for example, it's essentially impossible, or it's it's unlikely to the point of of effectively being impossible. The Storyteller by Walter Benjamin Familiar though his name may be to us, the storyteller in his living immediacy is by no means a present force. He has already become something remote from us and something that is getting even more distant. Viewed from a certain distance, the great, simple outlines which define the storyteller stand out in him, or rather, they become visible in him, just as in a rock, a human head or an animal's body may appear to an observer at the proper distance and angle of vision. This distance and this angle of vision are prescribed for us by an experience 
which we may have almost every day. It teaches us that the art of storytelling is coming to an end. Less and less frequently do we encounter people with the ability to tell a tale properly. More and more often, there is embarrassment all around when the wish to hear a story is expressed. It is as if something that seemed inalienable to us, the securest among our possessions, were taken from us, the ability to exchange experiences. For never has experience been contradicted more thoroughly than strategic experience by tactical warfare, economic experience by inflation, bodily experience by mechanical warfare, moral experience by those in power. A generation that has gone to school on a horse-drawn streetcar now stood under the open sky in a countryside in which nothing remained unchanged but the clouds. And beneath these clouds, in a field of force of destructive torrents and explosions, was the tiny, fragile human body. One reason for this phenomenon is obvious. Experience has fallen in value and it looks as if it is continuing to fall into bottomlessness. Every glance at a newspaper demonstrates that it has reached a new low, that our picture, not only of the external world, but of the moral world as well, overnight has undergone changes which were never thought possible. If the art of storytelling has become rare, the dissemination of information has had a decisive share in the state of affairs. Every morning brings us news of the globe, and yet we are poor in noteworthy stories. This is because no event any longer comes to us without already being shot through with explanation. In other words, by now, almost nothing that happens benefits storytelling. Almost everything benefits information. Actually, it is half the art of storytelling to keep a story free from explanation as one reproduces it. The most extraordinary things, marvelous things, are related with the greatest accuracy, but the psychological connection of the events is not forced on the reader. It is left up to him to interpret things the way he understands them, and thus the narrative achieves an amplitude that information lacks. Boredom is the dream bird that hatches the egg of experience. A rustling in the leaves drives him away. His nesting places, the activities that are intimately associated with boredom, are already extinct in the cities and are declining in the country as well. With this, the gift for listening is lost, and the community of listeners disappears. For storytelling is always the art of repeating stories, and this art is lost when the stories are no longer retained.
It is lost because there is no more weaving and spinning to go on while they are being listened to. The more self-forgetful the listener is, the more deeply is what he listens to impressed upon his memory. When the rhythm of work has seized him, he listens to the tales in such a way that the gift of retelling them comes to him all by itself. This, then, is the nature of the web in which the gift of storytelling is cradled. This is how today it is becoming unraveled at all its ends, after being woven thousands of years ago in the ambiance of the oldest forms of craftsmanship. One can go on and ask oneself whether the relationship of the storyteller to his material, human life, is not in itself a craftsman's relationship, whether it is not his very task to fashion the raw material of experience, his own and that of others, in a solid, useful, and unique way. It is a kind of procedure which may perhaps most adequately be exemplified by the proverb, if one thinks of it as an ideogram of a story. A proverb, one might say, is a ruin which stands on the site of an old story, and in which a moral twines about a happening, like ivy around a wall. Seen in this way, the storyteller joins the ranks of the teachers and sages. He has counsel. Not for a few situations, as the proverb does, but for many, like the sage, for it is granted to him to reach back to a whole lifetime. His gift is the ability to relate his life, his distinction to be able to tell his entire life, the storyteller. He is the man who could let the wick of his life be consumed completely by the gentle flame of his story. The storyteller is the figure in which the righteous man encounters himself. You've been listening to the sounds of the Electro Library a production of Stonehill's Digital Lab. In this episode, we listen to Amra Brooks read from Joan Didion's The White Album, Daria Labutina read her poem entitled Citizen, and Linda Berry discuss storytelling and her liver with Jared Green. We also heard Lin Chen read his poem Names, and Jared Green read his translation of Windows by Charles Baudelaire. Timothy Woodcock helped us ponder the infinite monkey theorem, and Daniel Itzkiewicz and Jared Green read from Walter Benjamin's The Storyteller. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit theelectrolibrary.org. Join us next time for more stories, poems, interviews, fragments, and noise bursts. The Electro Library, reading at the speed of sound. <laughs>